kind of reiterate what Keith has said. Thank you to uh, all of you who came uh, yesterday morning in the cold. We had a great group of people here working outside and then inside uh, cleaning up the chairs, sewing things up, um, and just washing windows and just kind of prettying this place. Uh, so it is a great joy to have people come and uh, take care of the church. So thank you for that blessing. Also, I want to take a minute and uh, just say that, um, yeah, I had a great night of fellowship um, at game night last night. There were kind of two things that I learned and saw. Um, well, actually three. First and foremost, we played a game that was uh, based on trivia, and it was based on trivia by generation. And it started off, and you had the boomers, and the Gen Xers, and then you had the next, and then it went all the way up to Gen Z, or whatever it is. And the, the funny thing was, was I began to realize truly how old I am. Um, because I, I was better at answering the boomer questions than any of them. I wasn't even really good at answering Gen X, which is truly my generation. Um, so number one, um, I learned that I'm old. Uh, number two, like he said, I do recognize that there are some highly competitive people um, in our congregation. We played a game, well, I didn't play, I was observing from a distance, um, a game called Nerds. And uh, all I can tell you is, is when, it, when, when you're in the middle of a game and two people stand up and a chair gets knocked over, uh, you know, you know it's, it's serious. And then the final thing, and I'm still wondering about this, in the, the trivial game, I think we were in Gen Z, and we were, we were, I was uh, asking this question, and it was this guy, or I think a guy, and the name I'm trying to pronounce, and I'm like, Shuge, Shuggy, Shugir, and Keith is like, Shug, and he knows the name exactly, and it's some rapper or something, Shug, Shug, so all I want to know is how does he know this? That's my question. I'm still in my brain going, how did he know who this person was? But we'll get that answer later. Um, but no, great, great time. Um, had a lot of fun with everybody, so thank you for it. Um, we are going to turn now, obviously, to our study in the book of Hebrews. We're in our second week with it. And uh, what I'd like to do is I'd like to, to, to start off by saying this. The enemy wants nothing more than to lay out a perfectly calm ocean before you, to entice you into it, to cause you to think that you are fine, and not let you know that there is a strong undercurrent below you that can slowly, slowly drift you out to sea. That is what he is after, and that is what we are going to talk about this morning when we particularly look at uh, the first four verses in chapter two of the book of Hebrews. To accentuate that, I remember when I was a young kid, I was probably between 8 and 10, and couldn't wait. We had uh, gone on a family trip to Mexico. We had arrived. I couldn't wait to get out into the ocean and go and play and just enjoy my time. And so as I had done so, my brother and I got out. We ran out onto the ocean and started playing and diving in the waves and enjoyed our time for, I'm guessing, maybe 20 to 30 minutes. And interestingly enough, as we enjoyed our time, as we were fixated on what was before us, I wasn't paying attention to what was happening to us, slowly but surely, as we were drifting down the shoreline. And interestingly enough, at the end, I turned and I looked, and what was familiar to me was no longer familiar to me. And I had recognized that we had drifted probably some 200 yards down the ocean. Now, in retrospect, as an adult, 200 yards isn't a whole lot, but for me, I was terrified. I looked back, I looked, and I recognized that this isn't where I was, and how did I end up getting here? 
And what we're going to be talking about today is we're going to be talking about a spiritual term known as drifting. And what I want to ask you is this. Are you drifting away from God? And what I'm going to tell you is simply this. If you have not anchored yourself in your faith in Jesus Christ, the bottom line is you are drifting away. There is no staying in place passively. There is no just cruising along in the Christian faith. If we are not constantly anchoring ourselves to the faith that we profess, what is happening to us is exactly what happened to me in that ocean back in Mexico. We are slowly drifting away from the foundations of our faith. Culture is constantly chewing away, ebbing away, drawing us away from the centrality of who we are in Christ. And what's interesting is, is the enemy wants to do this in a very subtle way. He wants you to make it appear like all is calm, all is well. And then what he will do, like when we were in the ocean, is he will throw some interesting distractions to get your eyes off of a fixated point, which is the centrality of our faith in Jesus Christ. And before you know it, if you are not careful, you can drift so far that you have a long ways to go to get back to Jesus. And so what I want to ask you is this, what have you done or what are you doing to keep yourself anchored in your faith? Because the reality is, is if you are not doing something or things to keep you anchored in your faith, you are drifting away from it. It's that simple. This morning, we're looking at the book of Hebrews, and what I'd like to do is I'm going to say the same quote that I started off with last week, because I think it's important for us to understand the context of what we're in. And before I do, I want us to recognize that the book of Hebrews is written by an unknown author. Some might say that it's Paul, although the way that it's written, a lot of scholars would say that uh, it isn't Paul's writing. Some would attribute it to Apollo, some attribute it to Barnabas. Um, others attribute it to Clement, but the bottom line is, scholarly's work will say that the author is unknown. But the purpose behind the book is, is extremely important for us today. The reason that we're going through the book of Hebrews is this. We've spent several weeks in this one-to-one study understanding the centrality of Scripture, how we can trust it, who we have in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who is God to us, what is salvation, And then we moved, obviously, to Palm Sunday and Easter, and we celebrated and recognized the importance of Christ's death and resurrection from the grave and what that does for you and I. But the reason that we're in Hebrews is this, is because when we are saved, praise God for it, we are secure in our salvation, but we can drift away from our faith. The world can cause us to move and to look to other things, to begin to dull who we are in Jesus, to begin to minimize the impact that we might have, but more importantly, to try to distract the intimate relationship that is before us with our Savior Jesus Christ. And the whole point of Hebrews is this. The author is writing some 30 to 35 years after Christ's death and resurrection from the grave. And what he is noticing is is that the people of God are beginning to turn back to old religious practices because they feel that what they have been given can't be good enough. Is it really true 
that I can be secure in who I am with my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ simply by trusting in his death and resurrection from the grave? Am I saved by grace through faith in Jesus? And is that all that we need? Did Jesus really do everything that he said he did? And they begin to think, I'm not so sure. So I'll take a little bit of what Jesus has done, but I'm going to add some of the old back in to make me think or feel more secure in who I am or what I do. And what's hard in that is little by little, the people of God began to turn away from the centrality of what Christ had professed. And so the book of Hebrews, for the first several chapters, the author is saying, look, don't turn away from this. And you're going to get tired of me hearing this, but this is the mantra that the writer will say. He says, don't turn away from Christ because you have the best of the best in Jesus. We're going to read constantly that Christ is better than, or in Christ we have more than. And this is what I want to show you. The book of Hebrews exists to encourage our hearts to recognize that we have the best of the best in our Savior Jesus. Because of this, we do not need to turn to or add other systems of religion or worship in our lives. In this book, over 25 times, we will read the words better, more, or greater. All of which are referring to the superiority of Jesus. The author wants the reader to understand, don't turn away from what you have been given. Don't add to what you don't need to add to. Don't take away from what you have in Jesus Christ. And interestingly enough, we might sit here today and say, well, I don't know that that's so important. I don't feel like we're doing those things. But yet what we see in our culture today is this tendency to have Jesus, but then to look to all of these self-betterment ideas. Why is it, and let me just throw this out to you, that the self-help industry is over a billion dollars in our market today. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I'm not against moving and growing in who we are in Jesus Christ, but we can't help ourselves. We desperately need Jesus Christ in our lives. And so what we see sometimes is people will take Jesus and they'll say, well, I'll take Christ and I'll, and I'll profess who Christ is, but just in case to be culturally relevant, to be with the times, to be up in what's going on, I will add to my salvation this self-help idea. Or I will do these things to make sure that by doing them, I can count myself righteous before God's. And they'll slip into a works-based salvation. And what's happening here is the writer is saying, don't fall into this trap. And then interestingly enough, after going through the first uh, chapter, he discusses the superior of, of Jesus and lays out who he is as a divine individual and then goes through a comparison to the angels. And last week, if you were listening, I was saying that angels are a big deal. We see all throughout the Old Testament and even in the New Testament that they are God's mean of, means of proclamation. When an angel appears, something big is going to happen. And so they are not to be messed with. They are not to be trifled with. They are powerful beings. 
And yet what we see as the author writes is he says, as powerful as they are, as majestic as they are, as important as they are, in comparison to Jesus, they are nothing. And he lays out a series of Old Testament quotations demonstrating the superiority of Jesus over angels. And then we turn to chapter 2. And interestingly enough, what I want to encourage you in is chapter 2, we're going to read in these verses the first of five warnings that the author will give in the book of Hebrews. This, this section that we are in is a warning. And so this morning, I'm going to speak with intensity. This isn't some passive, blasé suggestion to followers of Jesus of, hey, you know what, do what you can Come to church, read your Bible, you know, blase, et cetera, et cetera. The author is saying, do not miss what I'm about to tell you. And what I'm going to tell you is, is that you are in danger of drifting away from Christ if your eyes are not fixated on him and who he is and what he has done. Chapter 2, in the first of five warnings, we are warned to pay attention to our faith. That's what we're going to speak about today. But then in chapter 3, we are warned to guard against unbelief within our faith. In chapter 5, we are warned to guard against falling away from the foundation of our faith. Chapter 10, we are warned to persevere in our faith. And in chapter 12, we are warned against refusing God within our faith. This section right here is a continuation of what the author is writing. In modern day, in scripture, we have inserted the verses and the chapter breaks. But what I want to do is, is I want to show you the transition. This isn't a, a kind of a new thought. What's happening in the original way this was written was the author was saying, look, I'm here to show you the superiority of Jesus. And I'm here to show you that he's better than angels. And now that I've shown you this, we move quickly to essentially the culmination of what he's talking about in chapter 2. He says, we must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. And the word here is a nautical term used by seabearing vessels explaining the challenge of drifting. He continues on and he says, For if the message spoken by angels was binding... And every violation and disobedience received its just punishment. How shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. The author is saying, look, I'm driving to a point because what I am seeing and noticing is that you are slowly but surely drifting away from your faith. And interestingly enough, what I want to do is I want to talk to you about my time in that ocean. I didn't know. There, there were no signs that said, be careful because there is a current pulling you down this ocean. No one told me, watch where you are. There were no signs that the ocean was moving in that direction. 
And interestingly enough, there were distractions before me. There was fun and incitement. There was playing with my brother. There was diving into the waves. And fortunately, obviously, I'm okay. But what was interesting was when I turned around, like I said before, what I had recognized and what I knew was no longer there. And all of what had occurred to me was an event that I was unaware of because I was not actively keeping an eye on where I should be situated. And so this morning, as we dive into this, I want to use this as an analogy. Brothers and sisters in Christ, what are you doing in your faith to keep yourselves anchored in the Word of God and who He is and who we are in Jesus Christ? What is the fixated referent point that you use? Are you aware of the doctrines that we profess? Are there means by which you can look and someone can say, you know what, this is what I think about God, and lovingly, okay, not judgingly, but lovingly, you can go to them and say, that's not who God is. This is who God is. Because the culture wants to come in and slowly but surely distract you, entice you, tantalize you, encourage you, and then before you know it, from the point of where you should be, you have drifted down the ocean. Now the joy in this is to know that we are secure in our salvation, in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But the reason that the author is writing this, think about this in the original context, is he is saying, look, if we drift too far, if we don't turn back, if we don't anchor ourselves in who Jesus Christ is, before we know it, we are going to be presenting something that is no longer the gospel. And so one of the things that we must do actively in our faith is to continually look at what is the reference points and how are we anchored. How many of you have gone out on the lake at Lake Panorama? How many of you have decided to take a nice little nap out on a boat in Lake Panorama? How many of you have forgot to drop your anchor? while taking a nap in Lake Panorama. That's not happened to me. But one of the things that is interesting is anyone that's been out on that lake will be able to affirm that when you look at the lake, it seems passive, doesn't it? But what do we know about that lake? It's not a lake, it's a river. And there's a current. And there's a current that is pulling toward a certain direction. And what's interesting is, is as calm as the water might look, when you drop the anchor, you begin to discover that there is a pole. And so obviously, when you drop anchor, the first thing that you want to do is A, drop anchor, but then you want to look and you want to pick a reference point. And you want to say, this is where the boat is, and this is where it should stay. And if for some reason, you notice that after a period of time, the boat is being dragged, either you need to reestablish your anchor, or you haven't anchored at all. And as interesting as enough, no one, I, when I said this to you, how many of you have decided to take a nice long nap in your boat and not dropped anchor? You all laughed, right? But can I say this lovingly to all of us? How many of us are napping on a boat right now without an anchor in our faith? How many of us are just passively going through the motions 
in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Taking a nap and then waking up and recognizing that where we were is no longer where we are. And then can I say this, and this isn't going to be very popular, but then we blame the church for that problem when we are the ones who should be responsible for anchoring our own faith in Jesus Christ. Our job, my job, Keith's job, is to give you the anchor point, to say this is where we are to stay. This is where we are to be. This is what we are to profess. But it's your job to drop the anchor. And it's your job to make sure that you are staying within the faith of what we profess. That's what the author's saying here. Take a minute, and I want to show you in verse 1, okay? First thing, are we drifting away from God? May we heed to the word of God and the salvation we have so we don't drift away from our faith. Right here in verse 1, the author says, we, okay? Now, notice that this is a uh, plural pronoun, okay? He is including himself. He's not saying you. He's not saying you all need to do a better job. He's saying we. He includes himself because the reality is that all of us are in danger of drifting away from Jesus if we are not continually monitoring and growing and looking to the Lord to anchor ourselves in the faith of what we profess. We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so we do not drift away. I love how he writes this. We have to pay more careful attention well, what does that mean? It means, obviously, that somehow, some way, there were distractions that were coming in that sounded good, that sounded tantalizing, that sounded logical, that sounded right, that sounded purposeful in the day. And little by little, the enemy was trickling in and causing the church to drift away from what it professed. I want to show this to you, and I want you to understand this very clearly. Drifting, please hear me on this. Drifting is not someone that, something, that, something that one actively does. We don't actively drift. It is something that passively happens. Nobody says, oh, let me actively just drift away. It's something that passively happens to us when we become distracted or tantalized by what sounds good, logical, or interesting in today's culture. And what I'm going to tell you is right now there are many churches that are drifting from the truth. And it looks good, and it sounds tantalizing, and all these people are excited about it, and they're growing in numbers, and they're saying, wow, this is so amazing, and we're so culturally relevant but they've drifted away from the core of who Christ is. Let's not talk about Christ's resurrection. Let's not talk about sin. Let's talk about the fact that Jesus loves everybody. And yes, he does. But he died on a cross to forgive us of our sins, and we are dead in our sins, and we desperately need a Savior. But don't say those things because they're offensive. What the enemy will do is little by little he will come forward and cause the church if we are not looking to the referent point 
of who we are and what our salvation is and slowly but surely move us away from the faith that has been foundationally true throughout the ages. And then he continues on, and he, and he solidifies this. He says, okay, so for if the message spoken by the angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? He's moving forward and he's demonstrating consequence here. So the first thing that the author is saying first to, to us is may we heed the word of God and the salvation we have so we don't drift away from our faith. But then next what he's saying is may we fear the consequences if we, that we may endure if we drift firmly from our firmly rooted faith. Does anybody fear the consequences of drifting away from our faith? Or do we just kind of blase go along and say, oh, it's okay, I'll just do my thing, I'll just do what I do, it's no big deal. And so what he's doing is he's reminding the people, he's going back to them and he's saying, look, back in the Old Testament, may we remember and recognize what happened to the people of God when they drifted away from their faith. And I don't know about you, but when I look at the Old Testament and when the people drifted away from their faith, it wasn't pretty. They created for themselves idols. They moved away from God's presence. They came to a point where they said, we don't need you, God, anymore. We want a king. You're not good enough for us. And how did that work out for them? Not very good. And so he's saying, may I remind you of this? And may there be a fear in you, a healthy fear an awe of who God is that is constantly saying, Lord, am I close to you? What is my relationship like with you? How am I walking with you today? What am I doing within my faith to draw closer to you each and every day rather than just expecting you to stay close to me, which he will and he always does. God never drifts. We are the one who drift away from God. Interestingly enough, one of the things that I remember and recognize is after that first kind of scary moment of recognizing that I had drifted down the ocean some 100 to 200 yards from where I was supposed to be, I remember getting out, walking, and walking back up the ocean or the beach to where we were. And what I'll tell you is this, that I went back into the ocean and I went back and had fun but about every minute or so, I would always look and say, okay, where am I? And what was interesting was I came to discover, and I did this little tiny test. I would go out, and I would just lift myself up for about 10 seconds and just see what happened. And nothing visually would demonstrate that there was a current. But sure enough, as I floated, I recognized that I would go like this, and then I'd plant myself. And so I would constantly go and look back and say, okay, I've been playing for about four or five minutes. I need to now just kind of make my direction back and get myself centered again. Are we doing that in our faith? Are we examining ourselves on a regular basis? Going before God and saying, Lord, am I drawing closer to you 
or am I drifting away from you? I love what John Piper says. Um, he writes a, a writing called The Danger of Drifting from the Word, and he's speaking specifically on Hebrews 2, chapters 1 through 4. And this is what he says. The mark of a true child of God is that he or she does not drift for long. A true follower of Jesus will be constantly looking back to the reference point because we all drift. The fact of the matter is we all drift. But a true follower of Jesus will be looking back and realizing I'm drifting and I need to come back to you. That can be through reading of the word. That can be through studying doctrine. That can be through repentance. That can be through looking and saying, what is culture saying? And what does God's word say? And then in looking at that and saying, this is what culture says, but this is what God's word says. And not infusing what culture says to try to make the word relevant to what culture says, but rather recognizing that the word is the word of God and it speaks to culture, not the other way around. And so often, what will happen if we're not careful is that we can be carried in this current and if we don't look back to our reference point, we can be speaking something, but it certainly isn't the gospel. And so we see, and we fear the consequence. Is anybody afraid? Now, God's not a mean God. I don't want you thinking that God's ready to like zap you with a lightning bolt. But does anybody fear God in the sense of, their relationship with him? Does anybody cherish their relationship with him? Do you actively say, I want to pursue you, God, on a regular basis and I want to know you more? Or are we passively drifting? Let me get, get this over to you, okay? I, I want to give this analogy. The enemy wants you to think that you've just gone to a wonderful amusement park and you've got this awesome inner tube and all you gotta do is get into the lazy river and you're gonna be fine and it's just gonna carry you down and bring you back around and not to worry. So just kick back, relax, and enjoy the ride. And what he will do is he will say, come on, enter in, sit in the lazy river, put your head back, and ignore what's going on because you'll come back around again. And what we have to realize is, is we need to get into that river and have a paddle and to continually paddle upstream to stay where we are. Because culture and the world is an undercurrent that is constantly trying to pull us away from the central aspect of our faith in Jesus Christ. And if we are not paddling, if we are not anchoring ourselves in who Jesus is, we will drift away. And what I'm going to tell you is this, it doesn't come back around again. We can drift to where we no longer know who Christ is. Salvation is secure. Perseverance of the saint. But the true mark of the believer is someone who will say, where am I with you? What am I doing, and how might I be able to stay close to you? The mark of a true child of God is that he or she does not drift for long. And so I'm going to ask a question, and I don't need to know the answer. 
But what I want to ask of you is this. Are you drifting and how long have you drifted? And if you're real with yourself, if you're true with yourself, you will say, I am drifting because the reality is we all are drifting. The manner of how we combat it is to look and say, what can I do not to drift? How can I anchor myself? How can I paddle against the current of the culture of today? And then we continue on, and he moves to, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? He's saying, don't miss what you've been given. And so lovingly, what I want to do is I want to go back, and I want to say, how many of us rejoiced on Easter Sunday? Praise God, he is alive, he is risen indeed, right? Can I ask you an honest question? How many of you are just as excited about that today as you were two Sundays ago? Do you see the slow drift? Do you see how easy it is just to pick up your feet and enjoy sort of the cultural side and recognize that slowly but surely, if we're not careful, things will drift? Now, as much as I love Easter, as much as I love celebrating Easter, as much as it is important for us in our Christian faith to have a day where we set aside specifically and celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday, maybe realize that we worship a risen Savior just as much today as we did two weeks ago. And Jesus is just as much alive and active in our lives as he was two weeks ago as he is today. My question to us is, are we just as active in him as we were two weeks ago? Then he continues on and he says, this salvation which was first announced by the Lord was confirmed to us by those who heard him. Don't miss this. What's happening here is the author is a second participant, for lack of a better word, in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Most likely, what's going on here is this individual was not physically there to visualize Christ's death and resurrection from the grave. He's heard about it from other people. We're moving away from the actual event, and what he's saying is let's not get soft on it and let's not change what is there. May we continue to profess the joy that these individuals experienced and knew when Christ died and rose from the grave and triumphed over sin and death. And then he said, God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles. He's going back and he's saying, look, you all are turning to other things. You're turning back to the old way. You're looking for old means to affirm you in your faith, which you no longer need to do. And don't forget, because God showed you, he testified to it through signs, the miracles that Jesus professed, the miracles that Jesus performed, the means by which he demonstrated that he indeed was God in the flesh.
And now you have the gift of the Holy Spirit that's been distributed according to his will. You want to know what your anchor is? Your anchor is the Holy Spirit. When we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we are given the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, which indwells us, becomes part of who we are. I talked about before, where in the Old Testament, God dwelt in the Ark of the Covenant. Not a bad place to be. We also talked about the fact that the high priest, one individual could go in and atone for the sins of the people of God. But what we know when Christ dies and rises from the grave, we hear him say, like I said before, it is finished. And when Christ gives up his spirit, darkness comes over the land, there is a great quake and a tearing of the temple veil from the top to bottom, demonstrating that indeed we now as followers of Jesus Christ will have direct access to God because of what Christ has done. And what we know about the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit is a deposit to us guaranteeing that we are Christ's possession. And so what the author is saying is the Holy Spirit is your anchor. The Holy Spirit is the one, the counselor, that comes and says, look, you're drifting Warning, warning, warning. And the question is, are you paying attention to the Holy Spirit? Or are you paying attention and satisfying the desires of the flesh? So in this, what the author essentially is saying is this. May we live out what we have learned so that we will have a vibrant and abundant faith. May we live out what we have learned so that we will have a vibrant and abundant faith. Remember what Christ has done and now act upon it. I'm gonna say this and I find it very interesting. And to be honest with you, it's probably gonna offend some of you. But I think it's so important for us to think and recognize, and that is this. The devil doesn't care if you go to church or read your Bible as long as you don't apply it to your life. Let me say that one more time. The devil does not care if you go to church or read your Bible as long as you don't apply it to your life. Now, Praise God that you all are here. I'm not saying no thank you for coming. I appreciate the effort. But my question is this. Are you just coming and sitting in the pew? Are you just coming and listening to some guy hoping and praying that his sermon is going to end soon because you have somewhere you need to be? Let me throw this out to you, and I'm going to say this lovingly but quite seriously. How many of you are reading your Bible? Let me ask another question. How many of you are reading your Bible and as you read your Bible, allowing it to soak into your life and transform who you are more and more into the image of God? I would rather you read one verse in the Bible and truly apply it to your life than read the entire Bible and just be like, I read it and I have no idea what it means. 
how are you applying what you are learning? How are you applying what you are being challenged in? How are you applying what God's word is telling you in your life? Or are you just reading it and ticking off the box and saying, I read my scripture today, but not allowing it to transform and chip away at who you are? And what I'm going to tell you is this. If you're just coming to church and you're just reading the Bible, but it has, has no applicational effect on you, no transformational change on you, you are drifting. Passage in Philippians 2, 12 through 13, I want to read this to us. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Are you working out your salvation? Now notice, it's possessive. You have it. It's been given. It hasn't been taken away. But what I want to ask is this. Are you just sitting on the lazy river? Or are you actively paddling against the culture and working out the salvation that you've been given? To stay rooted in your faith, to stay fundamentally within the foundations of the doctrines that have been given to the Christian faith? Or are you just letting culture come in and saying, you know, that sounds good. That sounds right. Everybody believes it, so it must be right. The Bible must be wrong. It must be antiquated. Surely the Bible doesn't say this because this is what culture says and this is what culture tells me to do. Lovingly, what I want to encourage you in is this. If life is easy and you're just floating down the river, something's desperately wrong. Because the Christian faith is meant to swim upstream. It is counter-cultural. And so what I want to encourage you in is this. May you find that reference point. May you firmly Find yourself in Jesus Christ. May you lay that anchor. And then as we're going to see in this passage, may we persevere in our faith, no matter how strong the current may come. Later on in this, we're going to go through this entire book about how the author is saying Jesus is better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than Melchizedek. He's the best of the best. And after the author has established that for us, he's going to say, now because of this, this is how we are to live. But then in chapter 12, he's going to say, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And so what I want to encourage you in is this. If Jesus is the author, meaning the one who has written it, 
but also the perfecter, are your eyes firmly fixated on him? Or are we looking away and allowing culture to cause us to drift? This morning we've seen a warning in the book of Hebrews. After the author has worked through showing us the superiority of Christ to the angels, he is essentially saying to his crowd, don't miss this. Don't walk out of here today and say, meh, that's great, doesn't apply to me. And what he's saying is, are you drifting away from God? And in that, to counteract it, he's saying, may we heed to the word of God and the salvation that we have so that we don't drift away from our faith. May we fear the consequences that we may endure if we drift from our firmly rooted faith. There are consequences that we will endure if we drift away from God. And then he says, may we live out what we have learned so that we will have a vibrant and abundant faith. The idea that I want to leave you with this morning, sort of the last thing that I'd like to say, is because of the superiority of Christ. This is why. Because of the superiority of Christ and what we have in him, may we heed to what we have heard. May we stay with what has been given, essentially. But then also, may we live out what we have learned. I want to throw this out to you. It was so interesting. I, I, I don't take credit for it. I was just listening to this as I was um, going through, sort of preparing this message. And there was one pastor that was talking about um, living out what we have learned. And he says this. He throws out a question. And he says, how is it that in today's world we have access to thousands, hundreds of thousands of the best sermons ever preached? You all have access to preachers that are way better than me. And yet our world is so culturally messed up. And then he throws a question. He says, I wonder if people are just listening and not living. Are you listening and not living? Have you anchored yourself in the word of God? Are you allowing yourself to drift? And are you constantly looking to that reference point? Making sure that what you profess and what you believe is firmly rooted in God's word. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today and we just thank you for this. Uh, Lord, I thank you for this stern warning from the author of the book of Hebrews. Father, I thank you for uh, what he makes evident. Lord, it's uh, so true that the enemy wants nothing more than just to slowly but surely sort of erode what we profess away, allow us to drift, not only individually, but then corporately as a church. And so in that, Lord, I thank you for this warning. I thank you that he is bold enough to say, don't let this happen because it will if we are not careful. And so, Father, in that, I pray that we would take this message to heart, that we would recognize that, yes, God loves us deeply, God cares for us deeply. Those of us that have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ are firm and secure in him. 
But Father, may we not become so prideful to think that we have arrived or that we know it all or that we no longer need to look to you to stay firmly rooted in who we are in Jesus Christ. Father, may we have the wisdom and humility to realize that all of us, myself included, are drifting. And if we do not look back to you and set that anchor, we can drift to a point where we no longer profess who you are. Father, may that not be so. May that not be the case in our lives. May we continue to draw closely to you. May we recognize that you truly have established a firm and foundational point. You do not shift. You do not change. You do not ebb and flow. And so, Father, when we hook ourselves to you, when we establish or throw that anchor, may we recognize that you are the one that holds us firm. And we are blessed because of it. Father, thank you for your love, your mercy, and your grace that's new each and every morning. Thank you that if we do drift, we can come back to you. But Father, may we recognize that it is our job to see where we are constantly. And Father, we pray that through the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit, that we would look and continually paddle toward your truth. We thank you. We love you. We pray these things in your name, dear Jesus. We ask it all by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And all God's children say,